Our reading from scripture this morning is Revelation 1 through chapter 2, verse 7. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. It's all right. Some of you are probably wondering if she's going to preach. I wonder what it was like for you when you realized she was not. I told my wife this morning I wasn't going to do Revelation. I was going to do Ephesians instead. Just changed my mind after teasing all of you for the last eight or nine months. She said, you should lead with that. But I'm actually going to go ahead and preach on Revelation. And the reason is, I think it intimidates a lot of Christians. And there are good reasons for that, though I wish it were not so. Rich, go ahead and turn those up in case anyone wants to be looking on their Bible. Rich, turn the lights back up. Thanks. You can... I had him turn those down because the the language is evocative. The language is imagistic. The book of Revelation challenges us because it operates in three genres at the very same time. And so it's legit that it intimidates us. And yet there's so much beauty and truth and good in the book, though almost none of it is unique to the scriptures. I don't know how well you know the Old Testament and Jesus' teachings about the end times, but... What is unique about it is it's the only book of Scripture that's an entire apocalypse. It's a full apocalypse. But before I get into that, I want to encourage you to read it yourself. Last year, uh, in in, I think December, maybe January of this year, I began reading it in preparation for this, frankly because it's a long book. Not so much because it's an apocalypse, but because it's a long book, I wanted to really be gripped by it before I presented anything to you. And every time I sat down to read it, every time, I pictured a handful of you who were going through some rough things. And the way that Revelation describes your life of faith in light of the supernatural and the kingdom is so hope-giving. You who suffer, read the book of Revelation and see the king's perspective on your life in light of future events and be encouraged. You're intimidated by the book and yet there are multiple beautiful worship songs that are fully accessible to you. And we'll sing them and we'll utilize them in our call to worship like we did this morning. And go ahead and read it. It takes me over an hour. Some of you read faster, some of you slower, but I encourage you to read it because you'll be given the king's perspective on your life 
And you're like, I thought it was about the future. For a Jewish listener, they know that apocalyptic means not only something uncovered, which is what the word means technically, but something uncovered that tells us about today in light of the future. So a Jewish listener listening to this, and they're familiar with texts in addition to Daniel that are not in the scriptures, would have uh, known that what the future does is tell us about living today and encourages us today and puts our hearts at rest I do very much appreciate you mentioning casting our cares on him. I feel like it's one thing when I say it and another thing when you say it. So the way that we're going to study this is the way that it's designed to be read and to heard, to be heard. So I had Rich turn the lights down a little bit because it's an evocative, imagistic, apocalyptic prophecy designed to be sent to seven letters in a circular fashion. So one person got to bring the book of Revelation to those seven churches and watch as they were both commended and skewered. That would have been kind of a fun job to sit in those churches, right? And then read about the seals and the trumpets and the beasts and the witnesses. And we're going to cover all of it. And what I'm going to do is intersperse the readings to the churches throughout the sermon series because what we could do is go through all the churches maybe in two or three weeks and we learn all of their strengths and all the things that Jesus pushes back on them about. But I don't want to do that because um, I think it'll be more interesting to do it this way and more, more taking into account all three of the genres at the same time. Apocalyptic prophecy designed to be circulated to seven actual churches. And in the book of Revelation, seven means complete. So when you have a group of seven and you don't get all seven of them at the same time, that's a clue. And what that tells us is these are churches that John actually pastored. And the number seven helps us know that it's for us also. It's complete and therefore encouraging and accessible and helpful to us. It's also prophecy. What's prophecy? It's truth speak. If and when it talks about the future, it's talking about the future to help us with today. Remember Jonah's prophecy to the Ninevites? Perhaps you don't. Jonah's a very funny book. I encourage you to read it when you're like, I want to read the Bible, but I kind of want to chuckle too. The reason it's funny is he wrote it. And he kind of looks like a jerk. So that's interesting. Don't talk about Jonah anymore. You don't have time. You're talking about Revelation. But in, in Jonah... He says, repent or you'll be destroyed. What happens? They repent and they're not destroyed. Why? Because the purpose of the truth speak is to encourage repentance. In the same way, Revelation is going to talk about today and it's going to talk about the future. And when it talks about the future, it's to encourage us today. An apocalyptic prophecy circulated to seven churches. I had an apocalyptic moment the other day. I don't know if these words are are, uh, familiar to you. I heard a crash in my basement. I knew something had crashed, but I didn't know what it was. And because I have cats, I knew who caused it. <sighs> yeah, those of you that are laughing, I'm with you. Those of you that love cats, I don't. But I have two daughters, so I have two cats. It's fine. I don't dislike the cats. I just, I do wake up some mornings and I'm like, do we really have two cats? <laughs> so there was a crash. And two or three days later, I go down and the room is dark. And the moment where I turn the light on is an apocalyptic moment. That's where I find out what they did. And it was just a magnet board and the 120 magnets were all over the floor, you know, which for cats is not as bad as it could have been, frankly. That was an apocalyptic moment. Let me say it this way. And this is an interpretive key to actually the whole scriptures, but especially to the book of Revelation. 
There's nothing in the book of Revelation that's more true or profound for you or encouraging than it was for an Ephesian Christian. The first, and this applies to the whole scriptures, the first listeners of a text were who it was designed for. And that doesn't mean it's not also for you. I think John had as much familiarity as any writer of the Bible that what he was writing was for future Christians. But it wasn't written for them, it was written for the seven churches with a knowledge that it would encourage us also by the Holy Spirit. There's not one thing in the book that will encourage you that couldn't encourage an Ephesian Christian. And if you're familiar with the book, you'll realize how freeing that is, though it's challenging also. And as Carrie read in chapter 1, if you've read the book, you're very familiar with this word, but it is not a word used nearly as often as the rest of the text. This is from chapter 2, verse 7, the end of the encouragement to the Ephesian church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the Ephesians must conquer. And in many ways, the rest of the book of Revelation is a description of what it means to conquer. The implied question. There's a reward. There's punishment if you don't conquer. What does that mean? Well, in the text that we just looked at and heard, Jesus is quite ready to conquer. Did you catch all the imagery? I mean, I feel like I, I looked at, at paintings of this because Revelation is often painted, and I didn't want to display any of the paintings but I, because I feel like we would need movement. We would need post-MCU-level CGI to actually imagine Jesus with eyes flashing and a sword coming out of his mouth and a long robe and white hair. And those of you with white hair, white hair is the color of conquering. So you're, you're killing it. Way to go. The sash is him conquering as a priest. The robe is him conquering as a king. His feet, you're like, why are they burnished bronze? Because that's the best of iron, strength, and the best of copper doesn't rust. The sword is his prophetic word which speaks truth. His eyes are flashing fire which is purification. He's ready to conquer. And you imagine what it was like for the church in Ephesus? Church in Ephesus was probably this. Probably maybe, maybe this because it was a little later in the first century. Not that you all don't matter. I'm just trying to give us a grip on the number of people in the room. And they're listening in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the Roman Empire, hearing that they will conquer. And the book of Revelation has a lot of images of Rome in it. And it's not exclusive to Rome. It applies to us also as a symbolic metaphor. But they're hearing in this city that they not only will conquer, but have to conquer as followers of Jesus. What was that like for their imagination? What was it like when they heard this repeated and then saw it played out in the seals and the trumpets and the beasts, the image of Christ and the worship and the army of the Lord? What does it mean to conquer? Our first clue was actually in chapter 1, verse 3. There are seven beautiful attitudes in the Revelation. And when you see a beautiful attitude in the Scripture, you pay attention because there are not a lot of them, but they are very significant. Because what happens is, as we're gripped by the love of God, we take on the beautiful attitude of a follower of Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's what you should say to someone if they said, what did you do this morning? I said, well, I was blessed 
because I read aloud the words of this prophecy just to just see what they do. Just pause. You don't think that's a good idea? Think about it. It's a good idea. (laughs) Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. The beginning of conquering for the Ephesians and for us was hearing and then keeping the words of the prophecy. And you notice that John begins his letter before the vision, reminding them of the gospel, because that's what we hear. What do we hear? A description of Jesus, a description of the book, as an apocalyptic prophecy is going to say, right? And also the gospel. We do not do more on a Sunday than remember that we are loved, that we're freed, that we're called in to be a kingdom of priests to God. Some of you have been attending the church for a long time. You know that I like to summarize the gospel that you're loved. And because of the work of Christ, which is absolutely necessary and essential, you're reconciled to the Father. And then we have the Holy Spirit who calls us as his agents of love and reconciliation and justice and peace. The first pastor that I served under that uh, summarized the gospel would always say, you're a mess and you're loved. And I loved that because it was quicker. You'd say it quicker. You're a mess and you're loved. You're a mess and you're loved. It took me years to learn the spiritual importance of preaching the gospel to myself. And as I study the scripture, and, and maybe he defines it differently. I haven't heard him preach in over a decade. But there's more to it than that. First of all, the gospel doesn't start with your sin. You hear John? who loves us. That's where the good news starts. Loves in the present tense. And then this is where the Bible can be a little interesting. It it changes verb tenses on us. And has freed us. Why the passive language? Passive voice? Passive language? Passive voice? But there's, there's more grammarians than usual. The reason, which is great, the reason is because the work is entirely finished. And yet that's not all the work. The work is not receiving his love alone, Realizing we're freed alone, it's also into agency. We are called to be kingdom women and men for the sake of the world. John's not only reminding them of the gospel as he understands it, he's quoting something from Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, some of the most important words in the scripture. After the Israelites are brought out of Egypt, before they're given the Ten Commandments, God says, I have drawn you up on eagle's wings and rescued you from slavery that you might be a blessing to all the nations a kingdom of priests. See the internal consistency of the scriptures, though Revelation is apocalyptic, it is also in incredibly intricate connection with the Old Testament and the story of God's pursuit of his people. So hearing what? We're reminded of the gospel and we're also, our imaginations and our intellects are pressed by this description of Jesus and I wonder what you think of Jesus. It is the most profound question available to humans. It is the most theological question we answer. It is the most existential question we answer. Perhaps doing away with existentialist philosophy as we know it. Why am I talking about that? Is because we are to grapple with, or better yet, be gripped by this picture of Jesus. John did not have an understanding of the Trinity the way that later theologians work it out, and yet here he is describing it over and over using Old Testament language and the vision that Jesus gives him, both of his being and also with language, the one who is 
and who was and who is to come. Reflecting the language that God used when he appeared to Moses as a burning bush. Remember that? Take your shoes off. The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And God uses a, a very challenging Hebrew phrase to transcend time. And here is John affirming and then hearing from Jesus that Jesus is the same one. What do you think of him? What do you think of his stories, his miracles, and his call upon your life? It is the question. What do you think of the one who is and who was and and who is to come? And I want to invite you into something that I don't typically do, but the book of Revelation invites us to do, which is allow us to be gripped by the image. Again, if you read it this week or this month, I want to encourage you not so much to try to grip it, but to be gripped by it. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read, and this is not the end of the sermon. And if you fall asleep, it's okay. I know people are tired. It's all right. Don't snore because you're neighbor, but it's okay if you fall asleep. It really is. Or if you're already asleep. I'm going to read the text twice. Once at my normal speed, which I know is too fast for some of you, and once, and not because you don't understand, you just wish I would talk slower. And the other one quite slowly. And I want you to let your imagination interact with these words because these words are meant to be read aloud and to grip us. So if you're willing, you don't have to, you know, I'm not in control of anything, especially, well, if you're willing, close your eyes. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can open your eyes. Some of you already had. It's fine. The Ephesians must conquer by hearing, by allowing the vision of Jesus to grip them, and then by keeping. And we get a sense of what it means to keep the gospel, the vision of Christ as Lord. The Ephesians don't tolerate false teaching. They both test the teachers to check and see whether their words represent the words of Christ and the gospel of Christ 
and they then don't tolerate it. As far as I can tell, the false teachers in this church were saying, Jesus loves you, and live however you want. And the story of Scripture is a strong pushback on that, as well as on other things. And yet their affections were different than when they first came to become a, a gathering of Christ's followers. Their affections were different. You do not have the love that you had at first. As best I can tell, that love was actually for one another. They were still interested in the gospel and still interested in uh, the, the pursuing love of God and singing about it and worshiping it. And they were not as affectionate towards one another. There's a legend, and it's not from Scripture, but I love it, that John, in his late years, probably around this time, would be carried into the churches, and he would say, my brothers and sisters, love one another. And then he'd be carried out. In 50 years, when I'm still the pastor here, and I'm 92, that's what I hope happens. And no one will need to carry me. We'll have like a hover chair, right? And I'll come in, and I'll say, my sisters and brothers, love one another, and then I'll hover back over to the manse, Right? As far as I can tell, Jesus asking John to write it and then giving it in a circular letter is saying, good job not tolerating false teaching. Good job testing the teaching. That's one of the things our elders do. It's one of the things that keeps me up at night. Are all of our words in song and prayer and confession and from the pulpit making much of the gospel of Jesus? Are they fostering community? Are they leading us to be salt and light, to be a faithful presence where we find ourselves? The Ephesian church was good at that, and yet they were not loving one another. And what Jesus has the full expectation of is that hearing and seeing their lives from his perspective will not only affirm their belief in and trust in the gospel, it'll lead them to care for one another. It's an eerie text, though. You know you can go stand in Ephesus, right? It's still there, but it's in ruins. And so it's eerie because he says he'll take away the lampstand. I don't know if that's what happened. I do know one of the only, either the only or one of the only inscriptions in the city of Ephesus' ruins is to this church from about the 5th century. And it's a reference to John, who was probably a bishop in Ephesus. The Ephesians and all of us must conquer by hearing and keeping the gospel, by learning the king's perspective on our lives both today and in light of the future, which still is about our lives today. How do we do that? By letting the beautiful attitude of one who has heard the gospel of Jesus and has some imaginative understanding of him by faith grip us. It is not about gripping the gospel. It's about being gripped by it. It is not about understanding the love of God in full as much as receiving it and allowing it to wash over us because it is a free gift. Oftentimes it seems to me that um, outsiders think that Christianity is boring and part of the reason is it seems to many that what we value is obedience and I'm going to make a false dichotomy and those of you that are logical and philosophical are not going to like it and bear with me because I know it's a false dichotomy but I still think it's important to say. What is greater than obedience is beauty. And the face of Christ, both his human face that lived the life we couldn't live, that suffered, and his divine face with eyes of fire and white hair and a sword is beautiful. 
And we follow him because his love and his call on our life is beautiful. We learn to worship him because he is worthy of worship. We learn to love these imperfect neighbors in this imperfect place because of his love. And we learn to be faithfully present where we find ourselves because of the fiery eyes of Jesus and the sword of his truth speaking words and the sash that reminds us he has reconciled us to God and the robe that tells us he's king and his feet which are so strong a foundation. We worship and follow him because it is beautiful to do so. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. One down, 15 to go. It's going to be fun, isn't it? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we commend to you our lives and imaginations and our faith, knowing that you're a good father, and ask that you tend to them and ease our hearts and minds. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are not only one who can relate to sorrow and suffering, but one who is also a king and a priest and a prophet. And Holy Spirit, as we await the return of Jesus, who will make all things new, we ask for your comfort and assurance of love. Amen.